Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Strategy Skills Podcast. My name is Chris Safarova. I am your host. I am a founder and CEO of firmsconsulting.com and strategytraining.com. Joining us today is Mark Mahoney. Mark is an analyst who has been covering internet stocks on Wall Street since 1998. In addition to being ranked one of the top internet analysts by Institutional Investor Magazine for the last 15 years, he has been named the top earnings estimator and top stock picker in the internet retail segment by the Financial Times. T-Pranks has put him on the top 1% of all Wall Street analysts in terms of one-year stock picking performance. He's a regular contributor to CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox News, and has been quoted extensively in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Mark, thank you for joining us on the Strategy Skills Podcast. Thanks for including me, Chris. So let's talk a little bit about what you have been doing. Can you give us a highlight reel of your career? What led you to what you are doing today? Okay. Uh, I started on uh, Wall Street at Morgan Stanley in uh, 1998, uh, pretty much near the beginning of the commercial internet or the public market uh, internet. The first Friday I was on uh, Wall Street, I got a, the call from the CFO of a small private online company, a marketplace, an auction marketplace. Turns out that company was eBay. They were thinking about going public and they wanted to see what kind of interest there could be amongst public investors in their story. So that's sort of what got me uh, started. I, I was coming of age. I'd come out of business school. I went to Wharton for my uh, MBA, but I'd been on a college campus and then later on a, two graduate school campuses when the internet was starting to become highly popular and highly commercial. Call that in the early 1990s and the mid 1990s. And then there was the, uh, then there were the um, IPOs of things like Yahoo and uh, AOL and Excite, companies like that. And then eventually eBay, Amazon was in there too. And uh, so I was lucky in, in a way, generationally lucky there to be close to the birth of the internet, at least the public markets internet and the commercial internet. And I've been covering uh, internet companies, technology companies, principally consumer technology companies uh, for almost 25 years now on Wall Street. And part, part of it's just being in the right place at the right time, Chris. That's sometimes mm -hmm. what, what constitutes success. And just so you know, I've, I've made plenty of stock picking errors uh, in, in my, uh, my career, and I've tried to learn from them, from the wins and from the losses. But that's what I've been doing. I've been covering as a sell-side analyst. I've been covering internet stocks for pretty much 25 years. It essentially makes me the oldest and longest lasting internet analyst on Wall Street. Mark, and if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? 
<laughs> never to rely on one piece of advice to seek multiple pieces of advice and multiple um, uh, and, and multiple points of view. And I guess there's a lesson in when you invest in the stock market, you are going to be wrong a substantial period of time uh, because you can get the right companies and you can pick the right stocks, but you can still lose money. And it's actually one of the lessons uh, that I write about in my uh, in my book that uh, even if you pick the best stocks, you're going to lose. So it's the it, the lesson. The lesson really would be don't rely on one piece of advice and um, be patient and uh, and keep your mind as open as possible. The biggest mistake I've seen people, one of the biggest mistakes I've pe seen people make on Wall Street is just to stick with one point of view, even when the facts turn against them. It's, it's sometimes very hard to change your mind, but you have to have, especially in financial markets, you have to have a very flexible um, uh, and rigorous thinking process, but a very flexible mind in order to succeed because there are gonna be plenty of surprises that are almost impossible to predict. That is a very good advice. Mark, you have been analyzing, modeling, and writing about tech stocks for around 25 years. What lessons did you learn in your career as one of the longest serving internet analysts on Wall Street? Well, um, I'll throw a couple of ideas out. One is that uh, the public markets can, um, over the long term, I think the public markets generally are pretty good weighing machines. Um, uh, stocks that go up over a long period of time in the public markets generally are pretty good assets. I, I, I haven't seen the market make long-term mistakes. I've seen the market, though, make a lot of lots of short-term mistakes an overselling of a stock, an overbuying of a stock. So I generally feel like the, uh, when, you, when you're looking at near-term price fluctuations in a stock, it can be the stocks, especially, especially the stocks I've looked at, which are high growth tech stocks, the Teslas of the world, the Apples of the world, the Googles, the Amazon, the Netflixes. These can be awfully volatile. It doesn't necessarily mean that the they're more volatile. The stocks are usually more volatile than the fundamentals. And I also feel strongly I'm a fundamentalist at heart when it comes to picking stocks. And I do feel that strongly over the long term, if a company's fundamentals get stronger, consistently stronger and stronger, never perfectly, but consistently stronger and stronger, usually the, that's the sign. That's what drives a good stock. Strengthening fundamentals in my book, long-term have led to strengthening, strengthening stock prices. Mark, and what are some big trends you see as it relates to COVID-19? And what is it doing for e-commerce short-term and long-term? Well, Chris, you're asking a really important question. Um, it's, had a, it's had a dramatic impact on, the, um, on consumer technology companies. There's no doubt we've had a change, and I don't think it's been temporary. I think we've had a permanent change in consumer behaviors. And it comes from very different life experiences that occurred. I mean, people were forced to live remotely, work remotely. Um, they were forced to deal with a shutting down of physical retail, of physical entertainment, um, uh, media options, et cetera, for substantial periods of time. And I think that's what really changed human behavior. So, you know, for right or for wrong, for good or for bad, the COVID crisis became a dramatic accelerator for digital adoption, whether that's online retail, 
uh, whether that's uh, online media, uh, online education, online food order delivery, a series of categories, digital presence. I mean, if you were a small business prior to COVID, you could have maybe have gotten by without having a digital presence, given that physical stores and retail outlets, physical destinations were literally shut down for extended periods of time. You wouldn't have survived unless you had a digital presence. And even then you had to execute well. So the, um, uh, the, the, the COVID crisis, for good or for bad, really highlighted the importance of having a digital presence. It really uh, accelerated the overall adoption of, um, of, of digital activities and really across the board. You mentioned e-commerce, that was a clear winner. There was just a surge in spend to online channels and uh, that surge has slowed down, but we're not gonna reverse to where we were pre-COVID. Yeah, if you look at the statistics just in the US market, we went from about 15% online retail penetration to about 18% in a very short period of time. The quick explanation is generally, we've had a multi-year transition to online retail channels. The COVID crisis accelerated that by two, three, and even four years. And after that four years, it continues to rise. It just we just had this dramatic acceleration in a short period of time. It's a new baseline, and we're going to continue to grow higher from that. That's That's been one of the most clear, fundamental takeaways from the COVID crisis for online, for online companies and especially for online retail companies. One of the common conversations I've been having, we see that big spike and acceleration of spending. And then the magic question is, how much of that spike is permanent? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think that the, the uh, COVID crisis, for good or for bad, created a permanent, permanent pull forward in demand for digital services, digital products. I think you had a, a window that was at, at a minimum three months and as much as 18 months, depending on where you were in the world, in which... Um, you live through really an advertisement for the benefits of online retail and online entertainment and online food delivery, uh, online education, online communications like Zoom. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I think most people left that, um, that education process um, convinced of the benefits of using online channels. So I think it has been a permanent pull forward of demand. That's the way I've tended to ca uh, characterize the impact of the COVID crisis on digital companies and digital offerings. COVID was kind of a time machine that warped us five, seven years into the future. And we had this rapidly accelerated adoption of digital shopping. And Amazon was particularly primed to be the structural winner of this. Can you talk to us a little about that? Yeah, I think uh, there's been a, there were a few companies that I think were really broad beneficiaries of the COVID crisis. And I want to be careful. I don't mean to sound that for that to sound um, like it lacks compassion. The COVID crisis has been a tragedy for our planet. Um, uh, but there were impacts uh, on business models, and there were some companies that benefited from the surge in digital demand. And frankly, there were some companies that really allowed consumers and users to get through the COVID crisis easier. And I think Amazon was one of those. So Amazon's benefit uh, from the COVID crisis came in three or four ways. 
Uh, first is there clearly was an accelerated adoption of online retail. If you want, there were many markets around the world where for at least three months, if you wanted to purchase something, you had no physical store options. You had to buy online. Amazon was there. Second, you had an acceleration in the adoption of online advertising channels. And uh, Amazon's become one of the three or four largest marketers in the world. So they benefited that way. Third is the, um, the COVID crisis proved the importance, demonstrated the importance of having a digital presence. And so that supported cloud computing companies, companies that offer cloud computing that will store uh, companies' essential IT uh, needs and services in their clouds. So that's Amazon Web Services. That's kind of the third way in which uh, Amazon uh, benefited. The, I, those are really, and in some ways, uh, not so much Amazon, but other companies were really forced to pare back um, uh, some of their expense structure. That's less of an, that was less of a, an opportunity, if you will, or a forced opportunity for Amazon. But uh, you know, on those first three elements, Amazon was a COVID beneficiary. Their retail business benefited, their advertising business benefited, and um, and their cloud business benefited. And I think there were many consumers and businesses that benefited from spending money on Amazon. If they didn't have the Amazon retail channel, the advertising channel, or didn't have Amazon web services, their businesses wouldn't have been allowed to grow, survive during the COVID crisis. So there was a symbiotic relationship that uh, Amazon benefited and Amazon's customers benefited too from uh, Amazon being re in reason. I mean, nobody was prepared for the COVID crisis, but the extent that any company could be, Chris, Amazon was reasonably well positioned. Yes, absolutely. And when you look at this big picture, we had dramatic digital acceleration. Amazon and Shopify were both clearly poised to benefit from this digital acceleration. What about some of the other digital players? Who else do you think ends up being a winner in this? I know okay. eBay had a sort of unexpected spike. Chewy, there was a dramatic movement towards pet adoption. People, when they are forced to stay indoors, they look for companionship. A lot of people wanted to adopt pets. And of course, you have to feed your pet. Etsy benefited. And if we think of these other companies, is this rising tide that is going to lift all boats situation? Or do you think that there are going to be winners and losers? Well, Chris, I, uh, I think the way you set up the question is, is correct. I think most online retail companies, uh, um, almost all of them saw a surge in demand uh, during the COVID crisis. Now, the one area that was negatively impacted was anything related to travel. So whether you were offline or online, that, that business was really dramatically negatively impacted. Other ones that were positively impacted were the digital presence companies. I'm thinking companies like Wix, based out of Israel, GoDaddy, Shopify, based out of Canada, uh, those companies that really helped businesses emerge, operate, succeed online. So what I call web presence companies, uh, they benefited too. Squarespace would be another company there, uh, US-based uh, company. And then uh, there were uh, digital entertainment companies, to some extent, Spotify, which is based in Sweden, but definitely definitely any streaming entertainment company. So uh, Netflix was at the top. They had record number 
of subscriber, new subscriber ads, Netflix did in the March quarter of 2020 and in the June quarter of 2020, the two strongest quarters ever, precisely because people were looking for in-home entertainment options. I think uh, Disney Plus would have also benefited from this, uh, HBO Max, you know, services, streaming companies that were... Um, uh, that were online. And then finally, the online advertising companies. Um, and I'm here, I'm talking about Facebook, uh, Google, um, uh, Pinterest, Twitter, names like that, Snapchat. Uh, I think you would have seen most of them were initially hurt by the COVID crisis because there was just a shutdown and ad spend. But they very quickly reversed and their fundamentals, they saw people um, accelerating their online engagement you had a surge in usage in online media online media companies like twitter like facebook instagram tiktok uh, you had a surge in usage at those and it gave those companies more opportunities to monetize that usage through advertising so even the online advertising companies they weren't necessarily a first wave covid beneficiary but i would call them a second wave covid beneficiary yes mark we talked at a high level about some of the lessons you had, but I think you have some specific lessons for investors regarding tech stocks. Could you go through those? Yes, uh, Chris, I'd love to. I've got a presentation to do this with. Should I start going through that presentation? Sounds great, thank you. Okay, thanks, Chris. So um, this presentation is based on a book that I'll talk about later. And uh, it's based on uh, some lessons I picked up from watching investors and companies for 25 years, and particularly investors. Um, and it's that there's one single lesson uh, or one single mistake I've seen investors make, whether it's retail investors or institutional investors. It's um, trying to trade around high quality tech or growth stocks rather than invest uh, in them. And that's really what led to me wanting to write the book to try to address this, to try to get people to stop trading and really to start investing. And uh, as I thought back on the 25 years I've spent uh, covering technology stocks, my reaction was there has to be some lessons in here. I've covered four of the best performing stocks over the last five, 10, 20 years whether that's Facebook that's up 60, um, I'm sorry, 600% since its IPO, Google up over uh, almost 3,500%, 3,500% since its IPO, Netflix up over 40,000% since its IPO, and Amazon up over 160,000%. There have been massive winners, and I think they're investing lessons from there. Now, there have also been losers, and I've tried to draw lessons from there, too, whether it's companies like AOL, Time Warner, Yahoo, eBay, and really some companies that um, uh, really perform very poorly, like Groupon or, or Blue Apron. I try to try to draw lessons from both the successes uh, and the um, and the misses, the successes and the failures. Um, I did this, uh, you know, being the longest lasting Internet analyst on Wall Street. And as you mentioned earlier, Chris, I've been uh, covering these names for almost uh, 25 years and uh, a weekly contributor to CNBC and Bloomberg TV, Fox TV, uh, ranked by tip ranks relatively highly, top 1% of Wall Street anal analysts. So I've, I've been doing this for a while. I've had, uh, I was kind of, um, I had three um, uh, very nice um, 
endorsements of my book from people like uh, Kathy Wood and Jim Cramer and Scott Galloway. Uh, and uh, as a warning, though, I, I talk about in the book about the mistakes I've made, uh, because you in the, the financial markets, you're always going to make mistakes. It's an odds business. You just hope to generate a reasonable uh, winning percentage. Um, and so I do highlight some of the mistakes I made in the book. Um, the fact that I had a buy on Amazon back in 2003 when a stock jumped up 180%, or I put a buy on Blue Apron at the time of its IPO and that stock cratered 60%. So I've, I've tried to, I'm, I'm trying to be uh, upfront about the, the, the wins I've had in the markets and the losses and trying to draw lessons from both of those. So here are the lessons. Uh, you know, first is when you um, when you you're, there's going to be blood in the market, i.e., you're going to suffer losses when you pick bad stocks, because you definitely, absolutely, positively, positively will lose uh, money in the market from time to time. Because even stocks that now may look like bad ideas at the time look like sure things. My quip is that sure things can turn into sore things. This wonderful example on the right is Groupon which uh, uh, went public back in 2011. The stock is off 93% since its IPO. It's been a disaster. But at the time of its IPO, this was a company that rebuffed uh, a $6 billion takeout bid from Google. It had a CFO that came from Amazon. It was the fastest company to reach a billion and a half revenue run rate, fastest company in history. And it was such an innovative business model at the time that it had hundreds of copycat imitators in a short period of time. And yet even that, so, that sure thing turned into a sore thing. So I really want to, I spend, um, the first three of my lessons are really about how you can, the mistakes you can make, because I, we've had a phenomenal run in equity markets over the last five, 10 and 15 years. And I want to make sure that we really start with the risks. So that's one of them. The second risk is you can lose money even if you pick the best stocks, even if you pick the best companies, best in class stocks aren't immune from major sell-offs. I talked earlier about how well Facebook and Netflix and Google have been as, have been as stocks since their IPOs, but all of them in the last uh, two or three years have suffered material corrections. They've traded off 40%, 20%, 30% in a relatively short period of times. So even the best stocks can underperform at times. Third lesson, and I'm gonna start getting more constructive, is don't play around quarters. Really think about investing in these uh, assets. Find the high quality assets, wait for them to be dislocated, because they will be, and then invest in them. Invest for the long-term, stay focused on the long-term and ignore short-term stock price fluctuations. Here's my favorite example of this. Uh, Chris, you'd asked me about Amazon earlier on, and uh, I took this uh, stretch of time. I could have taken a bunch of different stretches of time, but I took this one, 2015 to 2018. During that period of time, Amazon stock jumped 386%, massively outperforming the market. You could have bought and held during that whole period of time, or you could have tried to play the quarters and just try to get that flip, that aftermarket surge in the stock price just based on earnings. And there would have been some quarters over that four-year period. So that's four years, four quarters a year, that's 16 quarters. There would have been periods of time over those four quarters in which uh, you would have made very nice returns in the aftermarket, up over 10% in the aftermarket. That's wonderful return for one night or for one day. However, 
there would have also been several quarters in which you would have lost five to 10% in the aftermarket. So instead of trading around the quarters where you're really playing an expectations game, not a fundamentals game, invest in stocks for the long term. Amazon's a wonderful example of that. All right, lesson number four from my 25 years of looking at tech stocks is tech stocks follow fundamentals. They do. Better the fundamentals, the stronger the fundamentals over time, the stronger the stock price. And the fundamentals you want to focus on most as a tech investor, as a growth investor, are revenue, revenue, and revenue. I know earnings are important and free cash flow are important too, but I'm going to argue why I think revenue is the better indicator for most of these stocks, most of the time, not all, but most of the time. The wonderful example here is Netflix. Now, here's a company that last decade was the single best performing S&P 500 stock for the entire decade. It rose almost 2,000% from 2010 to 2019 for that decade, handily outperforming the market. Why? It wasn't because of earnings and free cash flow. In fact, the free cash flow burn deteriorated almost every single year. The company burned 20 million in free cash flow in 2013, 1.7 billion in 2016. By 2019, they were burning over 3 billion in free cash flow. So there was a disconnect between free cash flow and earnings, or at least between free cash flow and the stock price. The connect was uh, the consistency of the 20% revenue growth, I'm going to go into what I call the 20% revenue growth rule, and uh, there was really positive customer lead customer metrics. They had accelerating customer ads every year. So uh, I, the argument and the lesson for me that I took away from following Netflix and other stocks, but this was just one of the best examples, is that stock prices uh, can follow revenue and customer metrics more than they follow free cash flow. Eventually, there's a, the, the free cash flow will play out, has to play out. And actually, that's what happened with Netflix. The market bid up Netflix on its revenue customer metrics because the market realized that eventually that would formulate substantial amounts of free cash flow, which is exactly what happened in 2020. Uh, what I uh, argue is another lesson is to focus on the things, what I call GCIs or growth curve initiatives, those are the factors that cause revenue growth rates to accelerate. In the example of Netflix in 2018, I go through this example in detail in the book, but Netflix expanded in the Asian markets, launched a bunch of new content shows, uh, new seasons of Stranger Things, originals like 13 Reasons Why, and also successfully implemented a price increase. Those growth curve initiatives caused the revenue growth to accelerate, which caused the stock price to double in a relatively short period of time. So as an investor, I'd argue you should, and I look for growth curve initiatives. And then I quickly hit on this 20% revenue growth rule. Again, I detail this in the book, but if you can find companies that at scale can sustain premium revenue growth, they're rare and they're highly valuable based on the analysis that we ran of the S&P 500 over the last couple of decades. It's rare to find companies that can generate consistent 20% revenue growth from scale. When they do, it's usually a very good sign of either a highly competent management team, very large market opportunity, very good product uh, development, uh, very good customer value proposition, or all of those factors that really come together to perform, to create high quality companies. All right, lesson number five, and I'll speed things up a little bit. Uh, it doesn't mean a thing if it ain't got that product swing, which is another way of saying successful product innovations. Innovation is usually one of the biggest drivers of fundamentals. So you wanna look for companies 
that have a track record or look like they're starting to generate a track record of successful product innovation. I refer to that as being a repeatable offense because management teams that successfully innovate once or twice, they must have, they probably have something in the culture or in the management team that allows really good innovation to occur. I use this example of Spotify um, as an example of how product innovation can really unlock a stock price. In the middle of 2020, you saw a dramatic increase in Spotify stock price. It wasn't because they were a, a material benefiter of uh, the, from the COVID crisis, not like a Netflix or a Peloton or Zoom were, but it's because they rolled in a new product, which is they uh, brought in podcasting. Uh, and uh, the success of podcasting uh, caused, uh, caused the market, the financial markets to realize that Spotify's value proposition was broader than, and they could reduce churn, bring in subscribers better than people had realized. So the markets do respond to product innovation. Lesson six has to do with what I call TAMs, total addressable markets. And essentially the bigger the TAM, the better because TAMs matter. They can be expanded. They can help drive growth that leads to scale and scale is what wins. And I specifically like looking for companies that have low penetration and large TAMs. Google is a wonderful example. Google was able to pull off 20% revenue growth for 10 years after hitting a 25 billion revenue run rate. There are only two companies in history that have been able to do that other than Google. And I'm going to identify those on the next slide. But what I want to try to get across here is you may not find another Google. There may be one or two others, probably one a decade that really comes along. But the basic point is you want to find companies that can pull a Google, that can grow revenue from scale, a couple of billion in revenue, that can grow revenue at a 20% clip for multiple years. And what helps that is if they have large TAMs, total adjustable markets, and they have small penetrations of those TAMs. I talked about the two other companies that have pulled a Google. Yes. Apple and Amazon. All right, lesson seven, follow the value prop, not the money. What I really mean by this is you wanna focus on companies with compelling value propositions to the consumers or customers, rather than those with the great business models, because it's the first that create more value long-term than the latter. Okay, if you can put those two together, great. But, but uh, customer-centric companies, I think long-term create more shareholder value than investor-centric companies. And maybe uh, Amazon versus eBay, I'll just do one example here. I think this is a wonderful example. I mean, Amazon has become the king of online retail with a market cap that's 50 times greater than eBay today. That wasn't the case in the first decade of the consumer internet. Then eBay had a market cap, market value that was six times greater than Amazon. It had a much better business model. But when it came to selection, price and convenience factors that really matter to consumers, Amazon's value proposition was better. That's why it won long-term. So follow the value prop, not the money. Lesson eight, managements matter most. Get the management team right and you'll likely get the stock right. Um, I talk about the key factors of stellar management. I look for founder-led companies, companies with long-term orientation, companies with great industry vision. My favorite example here may again be Netflix. Netflix was founded in 1998. The term really implied streaming of video, but there was it was impossible back then to stream uh, video. It would have taken you four hours to download the first five minutes of Terminator, if you remember that, that movie. Um, uh, but the company was founded on that vision, and that vision came true about 10 years later when broadband speeds came became robust enough for most consumer households. 
But I love to see that kind of vision and the ability of that company and its founder and co-founder and CEO, Reed Hastings, to really deliver on that vision. That's what that's the sign of a great management team. I also like to find founder-led companies. I worked backwards on this. I looked for the biggest companies in the world and found that most of them were, were run or are still being run by their founders for substantial periods of time. I can give you a couple of examples of companies that succeeded without being founder-led. Priceline.com or Booking.com is one example. There are others, but I generally have found some of the most successful companies to be founder-led. So I, I have a bias when I look for that with investing. Uh, lesson number nine, look for ballpark reasonable valuation. The point, I'm, the nuanced point I'm trying to make here, one of my lessons from looking at these stocks for 25 years is, of course, valuation matters, but it shouldn't be the single most important factor in the investment process. And you have to be aware of precision traps because there's a lot of art to valuation. You're trying to figure out, um, valuation comes down to figuring out future cash flows or future earnings, applying what you think the market will be willing to pay for those at some point in the future and today. And then and if it's in the future, discounting it back. And there are a lot of assumptions in there. So I want to, I'd rather be ballpark right rather than perfectly wrong, if you understand what I'm saying there. Uh, and one of the cases I really spent a lot of time on in the book is looking at examples of value. How do you value companies with minimal earnings? And how do you value companies when they have no earnings? And a lot of tech stocks and growth stocks go public when there are no earnings. So how can you possibly buy those stocks? Well, what I lay out in the book are four logic questions you want to go through. You want to ask yourself, are there any public companies with similar business models that are already profitable? If a company as a whole isn't profitable now, are there segments within the business that are? Is there a reason, number three, is there a reason why scale can't drive a business to profitability? And finally, are there concrete steps that management can take to drive the company to profitability? If you can get solid answers to those four logic test questions, then valuation may well be warranted. Uh, there, there may be a case for a reasonable valuation, even for a company that today is losing money. This is one of the reasons why I like Uber as a stock. I detail this in the, in the book, why I liked, during as I was writing the book, why I liked uh, Uber. I, I thought that they could do stuff, uh, they could scale the business to profitability, and there were costs they could take out. All right, last thing is... If I'm going to leave you with one thing, and if the book highlights one thing, one thing to remember, it's what I call DHQ, hunting for dislocated high quality stocks. If you're investing in the market, you're trying to minimize two risks, valuation risks and fundamentals risks. The way you minimize, not you can't eliminate, but you can reduce, hedge, somewhat minimize fundamentals risk is invest in the highest quality assets out there. That's what I was trying to do with the last couple of lessons. <clears throat> Highlight what are what makes a high quality company. And when it comes to valuation, the way you want to try to hedge valuation risks, multiple risk, high multiple risk, is to buy uh, stocks when they're dislocated. What's a dislocated stock? One that's 20 to 30% off from a peak, one that trades at a discount to its growth rate. If you can put those things together, find high quality stocks and buy them when they're dislocated, that's how you can make really nice returns, even amongst high growth, risky, high tech stocks. Again, this is what makes a high quality company. It's those looking for those tells of 20% revenue growth, companies that are very good at product innovation, face large TAMs, have very compelling customer value propositions and have great management teams. 
And what what when will you see dislocation opportunities? Pretty frequently, even the best stump uh, stocks. And here's four of them: Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix. They became the Fang portfolio. All of these stocks had material dislocations, 20% plus trade-offs in the last couple of years. So dislocation happens. Anyway, those are the, the, the 10 lessons that I tried to draw together based on my 25 years of covering probably the single most explosive part, for the most part, good, but sometimes there were bad explosions. The single most explosive part of, the, of Wall Street over the last 25 years, and that's the internet sector. And uh, the short-term lesson is don't play quarters, be long-term oriented. The long-term lesson is the most important one is hunt for DHQs or dislocated high-quality stocks. My book is called Nothing But Net. It's available for sale online at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, et cetera. So uh, uh, Nothing But Net by Mark Mahaney. And uh, that's, uh, Chris, that's the overview of the book. Thank you, Mark. That was a value-packed presentation. Thank you for this. So you mentioned the most important takeaway, but what are some key takeaways you would like our listeners to walk away with after listening to this episode? I'm going to just, I'm going to repeat something, Chris, because I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. It's that um, you want to look for dislocated high quality companies. So you don't just look for stocks that are dislocated and you don't just look for high quality companies. You look for that combination. And again, what you're trying to do when you invest looking for DHQs, dislocated high quality companies, you're trying to minimize fundamentals risk and valuation risk. And so you're looking for high quality companies. Again, what are those? Great management teams, compelling value propositions, not necessarily the best business models, but the best value propositions to consumers, customers. You're looking for companies with track records of product innovation, companies that face really large total addressable markets. So great large market opportunities because that allows them to grow at high elevated rates that tell the financial tell. Those are kind of four qualitative factors qualitative, quantitative factors, the financial tells that those, that allows companies, that package allows companies to grow with what I call premium growth rates, 20% plus for substantial periods of time from scale. So that's your high quality company. And then so that's what you're looking for, but you want to wait and find them when they're dislocated and they'll all get dislocated from time to time. If for no other reason, just for market rollovers. So you're going to identify the high quality companies and then wait until they're dislocated off 20 to 30% because they all be, my history has been that they all become dislocated. Even the best quality companies, they all become dislocated at some point along the way. And as a, as a long-term investor, you should view that as your opportunity to buy the stock or to add to positions. Chris, that, that's the one strongest lesson. I, I'll, I'll, I'll ta- I think that's the biggest takeaway from the book, Hunt for DHQs. Thank you, Mark. This was incredibly valuable. Thank you again for joining us today. And we really appreciate having you on our show. Thank you very much, Chris. Well, thanks everyone again for tuning in. My guest again has been Mark Mahoney. If you have been listening to the episode, there's actually a video version of it. You can find it on Firms Consulting YouTube channel. Make sure to check out Mark's book. It's called Nothing But Net. And I will see you next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com.
It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.